I love that song. Do you like that song? That is really, really lovely. Written, of course, by Keith Getty and Stuart Townen. And that is has a beautiful melody to it. And I love especially that third and final stanza, Holy Spirit from creation's birth, giving life to all that God has made. Show your power once again on earth. Cause your church to hunger for your ways. And especially this goes so well into our teaching time tonight. Let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice that in unity the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. Beautiful words, beautiful melody. We should, uh, we should probably even sing that again soon. I would love that. So wonderful. Well, tonight we have the privilege again to turn to God's Word, and I'd like to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Of course, we read the entirety of chapter 4 this morning just to remind ourselves and especially to encourage those who are with us on Sunday mornings and who are not always back on Sunday evening what we're studying and how the Lord is teaching us about how to function in the body of Christ. And if you have not been with us and we have been looking at the old man, new man metaphor that Paul speaks about here in Ephesians 4, I would remind you about how he tells us who we were outside of Christ and who we are in Christ. He says, for instance, in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man. You remember I said that the word for self is actually in the Greek text, the word for man. To put off the old man, like an old garment that doesn't fit you anymore. You should put that garment off of you completely and fully. This old man belongs, Paul says, to your former manner of life. And I think that's a real key there when he says manner of life. That speaks to the characteristic life that you lived outside of Christ. Your habits, your thinking, your life, your lifestyle. And he says the old man, that belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And he says rather than the old man status that used to characterize you, you are to be, according to verse 23, renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so he gives us this great metaphor of the putting off of the old life, not just the idea of doing it in terms of the status of your life, the state of your soul, that's already happened. According to Colossians 3, you have put off the old man. But here Paul says in Ephesians 4 that you are to do away with every vestige of the old man. Every article, every thread of clothing that used to characterize you, uh, you should take off 
every bit of that thread. If you have worn an old garment at times and you've taken that old garment off and it has become somewhat threadbare, you might find uh, little uh, specks of thread from that old garment say, for instance, on your arm, and you're to take every one of those threads completely off of you, all of that interwovenness of your former manner of life. In other words, you are to be completely renewed as a process, granted as a process, renewed in the spirit of your minds, putting on the new man. You wear new clothes now, and no one would ever put on Uh, an old jacket, and then try to put on a new jacket over it. It certainly doesn't fit in that context. And you should put on, he says, the new self. That means that every vestige of the new man, every element of your new life, every new way of thinking, every new attitude is to be your life now. Everything you think about, all your aspects of behavior, And you're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds because you're now created afresh after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what Paul says. And that, of course, should be very clear to us. Uh, There is uh, no confusion here. Uh, There's no sense of, Paul, what do you really mean? He's using this metaphor which would be very familiar to them. They would have known it just like you and I know it because of the clothing that we wear in our 21st century context. Throw out the old and bring in the new. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what he says beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away, having put off falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up edification as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I see in verses 25 to 30 four vices to put off from this former manner of life that you lived. And if anyone says, but I don't characteristically do any of those things anymore. I may not have even done much of those particular things themselves. But if any of those things were ever a part of your old life, a part of the old Adam where you resided, Paul says, I want you to put those things off completely and totally. Any thread of these things, these four vices, I'm telling you to put off. Because you are created anew, progressively so, in holiness and righteousness. And therefore, not only should you put off these old vices, 
but you should also put on new virtues. And he gives us four of these that are of particular importance to Paul and certainly must have been true of some of these believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Remember, they lived in a pagan culture, probably one that's not a lot unlike our own. Not much has changed, very frankly, from the first century to the 21st. Oh yes, we might have the accumulation of more sins, literally speaking, more years, more people, more sin, but certainly the patterns of sin, the ideas of particular sins. Paul is very, very solemnly telling us that we should put these things off from our lives completely and totally. And not just put them off, but replace them with the right kinds of virtues. Not just saying no to these vices, but saying very much yes to these virtues. And he gives us these four, and they are very, very instructive for us. And here's the first one. Number one, let's call it put off lying and put on truthfulness. Put off lying and put on truthfulness. Notice what he says in verse 25. Therefore, as a result of what I've just told you, you're a part of the new man status. You're no longer a part of Adam. You're a part of Christ. No longer are you in Adam, but now you're in Christ. Therefore, as a result of seeing your new man status come about as a particular response to being renewed in the spirit of your minds, this is what I want you to do very practically. I want you to put off, put away falsehood. That's the vice. And I want you to put on truth. In this case, he says, speak the truth. Now, he's already said, by the way, Speak the truth in love. Do you see that in verse 15? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, into Christ. And in that context, I told you very clearly that that really is talking about speaking the truth of right doctrine. Speaking the truth of right doctrine. Because in the context there, he says we should all work toward attaining the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, rather than being tossed to and fro by errant doctrine, rather than being persuaded to believe certain things that false teachers want you to believe, rather you are to speak the truth in love. That's clearly the context there. Here, it's more generic. Verse 25, put off falsehood and put on truth. And I particularly assume that he means by that put on the truth, that is, the way things really are, and not lying, not falsehood. Don't tell lies, tell the truth. And this gets down to the very practical elements of the Christian life. I would dare say that every one of us, especially in that old man status in which we once lived, lying may have been committed at least once or twice. You think? 
maybe more. Maybe some of you were actually, in those non-Christian days, characterized by falsehood. You always wanted to make yourself look better. You consistently desired to ensure that people thought very well of you. And because of that, because frankly not all of us are to be spoken well of because of the characteristic nature of what it means to be a non-Christian. And should I remind you what that is? Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. One of the futile-minded ways of non-Christians is to puff themselves up, to make themselves look good, to be able to say things about yourself that frankly are not true. That's characteristic of so many who are outside of Christ. Why? Because verse 18 says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, becoming callous, giving themselves up to various sins like sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But he says that's not the way you learned Christ. Just as the truth is in Jesus, speak the truth. Speak honestly about who you are. Don't shade the truth. Don't say who you are when you're not that kind of person. Be honest. Be honest in your dealings with others. Be transparent. Isn't it true that in the community of faith, we ought to be the most transparent people of all? You say, well, wait a minute. If we are, including being transparent about some of our sins, like James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, Oh, won't that make the body of Christ look bad? Do we think we're fooling anybody? Do, do we think we're actually living in such a way that people assume we have no sins? Now, that doesn't mean that you have to parade your sins and talk about them all the time, but it does mean this. You are very transparent and honest about the sins that you continue to struggle with as you work on confessing them and forsaking them for the glory of God. You don't wallow in them. You're not so transparent that you speak more about your sins than you do Christ. But you're not so proud, are you, that you would speak about more things that you think are right about you than are not right about you. You're transparent. You're honest. You're vulnerable. And you speak the truth about yourself and you put away falsehood from you as much as is humanly possible. By the way, the word put off here, do you see it in verse 25? That's the very same word, apophemenoi, as Paul used in verse 22 when he says, put off the old man with all his former manner of life. This is just the practical outworking of what one of these sins really turns out to be. Falsehood. Falsehood. Was that brought home to us in bold relief this week regarding Joshua Duggar? Did you read about that? Did you hear about that? One of the men of the Duggar clan, oldest son, who had already been found out to have been molesting young girls many, many years ago when he was 14, 15 years old, and now because of hacking into the Ashley Madison website, which is the website where men went 32 or 37 million men went on the website to disguise their identity so that they might have affairs, quote-unquote, against their spouse. 
by going on this supposed secure website and uh, describing the interests that you have in wanting to de- develop a relationship from, with someone who is not your spouse. And he was found out to have two different accounts on that website because it was hacked into and then it was broadcasted all across the world that he and so many others were found out to have accounts on this website. And of course, he responded and said, I'm the biggest hypocrite ever. He acknowledged his sin, for which you are thankful. But at the very time when he divulged that, yes, what I did at ages 14 and 15 was very, very wrong, and it has now come out, and I've been found out, and I've confessed these things, he should have also done some more confessing. Because now what is being divulged is making the matter far worse. He should have put away all falsehood and stopped living a double life. Now, I don't want to use this pulpit as a bully pulpit. I'm just using that as one example, one illustration of what Paul is calling on all believers, including Lance Quinn, including others, to put away falsehood. And notice what he says here. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. He particularizes it to include every single member of the local community of faith. Everybody in the local church, everybody who is a part of the body of Christ in that locale is to speak the truth with his neighbor. Lying is a part of the old man. It's a part of the old existence. And this lifestyle, Paul says, is corrupt through deceitful desires, according to verse 22. And because it is corrupt... Paul says you must put off, and in the Greek text it says you must put off the lie. That word for falsehood, the lie. Ta sudas, pseudo, to not be a liar. Whatever that lie may be, whatever you must do, you must speak the truth, Paul says, each one of you with his neighbor, and look at what he adds, for, because, we are members of one another. We're members of one another. Because we belong together in the body of Christ, we are to present imperative, always and forever, as long as you live, speak the truth. Now, Sometimes it's not easy. You might be put in a situation in which you're being asked direct questions and direct answers to those questions might land you in a place where you don't think you want to be. But it's always better, my friends, to speak the truth than to do anything else. It's always right to tell the truth. It's never actually right. And someone's going to immediately say, what about Rahab's lie? Do you notice in the Bible that God blessed her faith, but it never says He blessed her lie. It's never right to do wrong in order to be right. Isn't it true? It's never right to do wrong in order to be right. God always places a supreme premium 
on telling the truth, speaking the truth. In fact, look at chapter 6, verse 14, right in the context of putting your armor on. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And how do you do that? Paul says, verse 17, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which of course is the Word of God. He says that very plainly. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And what is one of the first aspects of this armor you're you're to put on, you're to fasten? Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the what? The belt of truth. The belt of truth. Yes, it is never right to do wrong in order to be right. It's always right to tell the truth. We've told that to our kids from their earliest days. And boy, have we often caught them in a whale of a lie. And sometimes, if it weren't so tragic, it would be comical. When you catch your child right in the midst of the lie, and you tell them, now look, don't lie anymore. Because if you lie about your lies, then it's always going to be worse, and you're going to be disciplined even the more. So tell us the truth right now, and don't lie. No, no, Daddy, I did not do that. No, Daddy, I did not do that. Now, are you lying? No, Daddy, I'm not lying. And then when they're found out, you say, Now, didn't Daddy tell you not to continue lying because it was going to be worse for you? Why did you lie? And what's the inevitable answer? Because I didn't want to get punished more. And then you say to them, But that's totally illogical. And then you realize your reasoning was someone who's not on your level. All they're doing as a little child is trying to avoid more punishment and yet their little brains don't quite grasp the idea that if you keep on lying, more punishment comes. And frankly, sometimes it seems that as we grow older, we've never left the art of doing that same dumb thing because we try to cover. We try to cover our tracks. We try to cover our sin. You know, Proverbs 28.13 says, what? Can anyone quote it for me? Proverbs 28.13. He who hides his sin shall not, what? Prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes it will find compassion. Let me put it in uh, 21st century vernacular. The things that we cover that we try to hide, the things that we cover, God will uncover. But the things that we uncover, God will what? He'll cover. If we uncover them by confessing and forsaking them, we shall find compassion. Now, it doesn't mean that we will avoid all the circumstances of that sin, all the consequences of that sin. We certainly will. But we won't receive greater consequences by continuing to cover. This is really sort of a a modern New Testament version. Don't lie, tell the truth. How easy is that? Paul says, your new man status requires you to put off falsehood and to put on the truth. Don't believe the lie, believe the truth. Live the truth. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. 
Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another. There's the command. Seeing or because you have put off the old man with its practices. You see, this can't characterize you, Paul says, because you've already put off the old man. So why lie to one another? That's what you did in your old practices. But according to verse 10, you've put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Same idea, but talking about it in that language as though you've already done this. And now he's saying, if there's any vestige of lying, put it off. Tear it away. Put it from you. Take all the threadbare little specks of that old garment and put it completely away from you. And by the way, if Paul were borrowing this idea of truth from anywhere in the Old Testament, it might be from Zechariah. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 8. And because you might not have traversed much in Zechariah, happy is the man who sits next to you who knows where Zechariah is. <laughs> Zechariah, sort of tucked there somewhat close to the end of your Old Testaments. This is a prophet Zechariah. And in chapter 8, notice where Paul may have gleaned this particular first vice and virtue. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. You might have a translation that says the city of what? Truth. The city of truth. You know what Paul might be doing here? He might be borrowing that idea and saying, if you're a new community in Christ, if you're a new city, and you've got citizenship in this new city, be truth tellers. Tell the truth. Allow this community, the body of Christ, Thousand Oaks Bible Church, to be known as the city of truth. Look at verse 16. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Here's what you should do in the city of truth. Speak the truth to one another. See, Paul, that, that rabbi, that teacher of the Old Testament, might have borrowed this very idea from this very passage. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. In other words, don't swindle people. Don't deceive people. Verse 17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Yes, all these things I hate. So, our first vice, put off lying. Our virtue, put on the truth. Speak the truth. Number two, number two, Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Put off sinful anger and put on righteous anger. Now this has some splaining to do. 
Because this can be very, very misunderstood. First, let's turn this around like Paul does, and let's talk about the virtue before the vice. Notice the command, verse 26. Be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Now, does that sound strange to you? Well, it only sounds strange if we understood it as though anger was a monolithic term that was only understood in one way. And that is sinful, vengeful anger that comes seething out of our minds into either our mouths or our actions. Now, if that's what Paul is saying here, then we've got a real problem, right? Because look at verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and what? Anger be put away from you, to be put off from you. So why would he be saying in verse 31, let anger be put off from you or put away? Uh, Any threads of anger uh, that remains uh, on your person, put it off from you. Get rid of it. Say no to it. Stamp it out. Kill it. Mortify it. But here he says, be angry and do not sin. Well, he must mean by this something other than a seething, vengeful, unrighteous, unholy anger. And of course he does. What I think he's referring to here is what we might call righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. When you see God's word, God's person, God's people trashed in the streets of unrighteousness. When God is criticized, when God is made of nothing in the minds of those around you, when God is even spurned, when God and His name are taken in vain. The the missionary Henry Martin once said, I shall no longer take it when God has been so dishonored. That's right. That's what we're talking about. Righteous anger. And so when he says here, be angry, and by the way, this is the, the word, it's actually the, the elongated form of this word, but it's the word orge, which is the word for wrath. It's the word for anger here. And he says, by the way, in a present imperative verb, be angry. Continue to be angry and yet do not sin. It speaks of this righteous indignation. And where might Paul have been borrowing this if he, if he borrowed uh, the previous one from Zechariah? How about Psalm 4.4? 4, 4? Look at Psalm 4.4 4 with me. This might be the very place where Paul has borrowed this particular term, be angry. And in this context, it has a very, very interesting context to it. Look at chapter 4, Psalm 4, verse 4, first line, what does it say? Be angry and do not sin. This is amazing. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this particular phrase in Greek is the exact same Greek phrase as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Exact same phrase. So this undoubtedly may have been where Paul takes this very principle. So Old Testament, Psalm 4.4, New Testament, Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. 
Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. What's he talking about? Look back at verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? My friends, this anger is to be a righteous indignation when God's name is dishonored. And I know you've felt this. I know you've thought this. When you've seen, for instance, on the television, something related to ISIS, something related to when Christians are being beheaded around the world, uh, when these innocent people are being hung on the gallows, as it were, and you and I have that tinge of righteous anger in our hearts when we say, this is wrong. This should not be happening. These Christians are dying for their faith, and I give glory to God if He's providentially letting it happen, but in the wickedness of the people who are doing such a thing, that's wrong, and they deserve the punishment that they will one day receive. And in your heart, there's that righteous anger. It's a lot like Psalm 119. You can write that down. Psalm 119, verse 53. This is what the psalmist says, very, very likewise, regarding this righteous indignation. Here's what he says, Psalm 119, verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. Why? Who forsake your law. They forsake your law. They dismiss it. They trample on it. They don't want to have anything to do, God, with you and your law. And as a result, what wells up within me is hot indignation. That's an example of righteous anger. And this psalmist, by the way, is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that there is a legitimate righteous anger. Deuteronomy 32, 21. Deuteronomy 32, 21. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and there is such a thing as someone who experiences it. Now, it may not be as common as you and I may think, and it probably isn't in some ways, but it does happen. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nature. Yes, it is right, Paul says, to have anger. But it better be righteous anger. And what you do with that righteous anger is all important. What did Jesus do? How did he actually express his own righteous indignation? You remember when he made the whip? And in John 2, he cleaned out the money changers from the temple? That was premeditated, folks. He didn't do that just on the spur of the moment. He was thinking about these things. He was pondering these things. And like Deuteronomy 32, like Psalm 119, 53, he, in a premeditated way, made that scourge of cords and he whipped them right out of that temple and he didn't have one unrighteous thought or anger in doing so. That would be a prime example of be angry and do not sin. You remember... 
the man with the withered hand. In fact, look at that passage, Mark, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3. If you want to see an example of Jesus being angry and even that word being used in Mark's Gospel, look at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is another example of what we were talking about this morning, right? It was the Sabbath. There was a man who needed to be healed. And they put Jesus in a context of saying, let's see if he heals this man on the Sabbath. Because if he does, then we want to accuse him. And verse 3 says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful? He even poses a question before he heals the man. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And of course, because they were treacherous themselves, they didn't want to answer. So the Bible says, But they were silent. And then notice verse 5. And he looked around at them with what? With anger with anger. Not a seething anger, not an unrighteous indignation, but an anger nonetheless, righteously so, because it says he was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And of course, true to form, The Pharisees, verse 6, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You say, what what kind of righteous anger are we to express? Well, I would suggest that the first and foremost thing to express righteous anger regarding would be idolatry, right? Specifically, Exodus chapter 20, in the first verses there, It says, you shall make no other gods before me, right? Don't make an image, don't make an idol. You shall have no other gods before me. And what did the children of Israel do? They went out and did that very thing. For which that righteous anger of God was visited upon them. Now, this particular passage, be angry and do not sin. It has a downside to it, and it comes for us in the latter part of verse 26. If you do sin, that's implied there in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. But if you do sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Or to say it in another way, if you have righteous indignation, that's one thing. But if you allow that righteous indignation to hit such a fever pitch where you actually transgress and go into or onto the other side of things and you actually become sinful in your own anger, even if it starts out well but it doesn't end well, Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You might say it this way. If you have righteous anger, and I don't know, maybe I've experienced that in my life somewhere. I certainly have thought at times or two that I might have had righteous anger in my soul and that I could identify it as righteous. 
But more often than not, even if I did have that sort of long fuse of righteous indignation, it inevitably gives way to the kind of human sinful anger that should be checked at the door. Right? That's the anger that we're talking about. And if you have that sense of righteous indignation and it moves itself away from that righteousness and it moves itself into unrighteousness, you say, well, how, did, how would that happen? Well, for instance, if you did think that God was being dishonored and you took matters into your own hand and you took vengeance upon another person, Romans chapter 13 tells you not to do that. Let God take vengeance on others and not you yourself. Don't become a a spiritual vigilante against others, even when they are doing wrong. Let God deal with them in His own vengeance, in His own time, and for His own purposes. Now, even if we're not talking now about any kind of righteous indignation, we're just talking about full-on, bold anger itself. What does he say to do? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You say, what does that mean? And I've heard people say, well, that means that if you're having a fight with your wife, that you cannot go to bed and not deal with that because if the sun goes down, then you're sinning against God. And if you're not going to deal with that, and I have counseled many, many couples, believe you me, in which they were very tired because it was 4.18 a.m. and they were still working on trying to reconcile. They were still working on trying to get together with this or that issue. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, I think when he uses this term, don't let the sun go down on your anger, he might be looking back at the book of Deuteronomy And in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about a kind of timetable where men would receive their uh, wages and they would receive their wages by sunset. And maybe all Paul is saying is he's using that as a colloquial phrase to say, as you have it within you, work out your anger with others. Just work it out. Do it in a time frame that is reasonable. Do it when the expectation ought to be there. Deuteronomy 24.15 is the passage that I'm particularly referring to. And it says this, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Maybe Paul's borrowing that idea and he's simply not saying it's a one-to-one correspondence. He might be saying there's a kind of uh, sunset time limit on righteous anger, which if you continue to be angry, it can turn inward on you. You can begin to allow it to fester. It can become a seething rage that becomes a wicked progression of thoughts and even possibly actions. And it could be removed, far removed from any righteous indignation. And we could just be talking here about the solid sin of anger, the no-holds-barred attitude of unrighteous anger. And then notice what he adds here. And give, verse 27, no opportunity to the devil. I think he ties that right with that vice, sinful anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity to cause you or me to go off the deep end with seething, unrighteous anger. Resist him. 
The devil, according to chapter 6, verse 11, needs to be resisted. Resist the temptation. Don't cater to him. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says he's the ruler of the air. He works in the sons of disobedience. Remember, context here, Ephesians 4, Paul says, look, this was a part of your old life. When you were angry, when you were seething in your anger, when you were just white, hot, mad at somebody else, what did you do? You took vengeance upon them. You spoke to them harshly. You may have hit them. You may have struck them. Whatever category of the retaliation we're talking about, we're simply saying that if you have unrighteous anger, you need to set the clock, try to deal with it as best you can in the community of faith and give the devil no opportunity, no place, no sense of causing brothers and sisters to continue in anger with one another. That's what he's saying. That's what you and I ought to do. You say, well, how can I practically respond to this? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a passage that you really ought to take to heart when you're dealing with every kind of sin, including sinful anger, which of course comes to you in your thoughts and moves itself often into action. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, he's not talking about the sinful flesh necessarily, he's just simply, we're humans. We don't wage war according to the flesh. We're, We're human beings. We walk around in our fleshly bodies. We're humans. But we don't war according to the flesh. We're, we're Christians. We're a part of the new man. So according to verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And we don't have fleshly weapons, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds, Paul? Verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And how do we do that? We take every thought captive to obey Christ, to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Why do I bring up that passage? To say simply this, if you have anger in your heart against your brother or sister, whether it's in the fellowship, whether it's in the marriage, whether it's in parenting, whether it's at the job, wherever it is, and with Christians and non-Christians alike. Resist the temptation to give the devil an opportunity to get you waylaid spiritually by currying favor with your angry attitudes. Tempting you to have angry words and angry actions. And especially, beloved, in the body of Christ, If somebody does something that angers you, this is the passage. This is what we're supposed to do. This is how we respond. And how is it? This is what he says. This is the practicality of it. If you have righteous anger, don't sin in that righteous anger. If you don't have righteous anger, uh, set the time limit on that anger. Uh, Don't allow it to be a short fuse. Allow it to be a long fuse. Uh, Be steadfast in this this righteous indignation and in the sinful anger, let it be quick, let it be over with and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, have short accounts, settle quickly with your neighbor, whoever that may be, and however it needs to be settled and do that for the glory of God because we're new men. 
We're new men. Number three. Number three. Put off stealing and put on honest work. Put off stealing and put on honest work. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anybody in need. Yes. The eighth of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall not steal. It's a commandment of God. And it's reiterated in Romans 13.9 in the New Testament. No change there. It carries a serious warning for somebody who is habitually a thief. And what warning is that? 1 Corinthians 6.10 Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to put it off. Every vestige of stealing. Every occurrence of taking something that doesn't belong to you. And it is the place, in its place I should say, is what? Putting on honest work. Don't steal. Work hard. Put on honest work. Hard work. That word there is kapiao. And it means working to the point of weariness or exhaustion. That's the total opposite of stealing from others, right? Have you seen tucked away in the back part of Second Thessalonians something that is very, very serious and can be in the body of Christ? Look at chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. This is very, very serious. He says in verse 6, Chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And what tradition was that, Paul? Work with your own hands. Provide for your own needs. Verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. Same idea. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. In other words, these were gospel men. They could get their living by the gospel. But to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, we didn't choose to do that. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him what? Not eat. If you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. See the word play there? Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. This is so serious. He says in verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, including right here in chapter 3, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Public shame. And yet he says in verse 15, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Admonish him. That's that word, nuthetel. Warn him. 
These are, these are strong warnings. These are, these are commands both to put off and to put on. Work to the point of exhaustion. Do what you must do and do it well. Do you remember in the early church, in the early part of the book of Acts, it said they gathered together their goods and they shared with anyone who had need? Do you remember Paul in Acts 20? Turn there. He actually is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the very letter we're studying. And here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. He's giving sort of uh, his last will and testament. He's on the island there at Miletus, and he's giving him, in a sense, his last testimonial, his last wisdom, his last advice. He's, he's probably not going to see them again. It's a very emotional scene. And here's what he said, one of the last things he says to them, Acts 20, 24, But I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And you know what part of that is? It's giving. Look at what he says in verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard, there's that idea again, in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Work hard. Share with others who have needs. Give, give, give. It's a strong command. Let the thief steal no longer. If you're characteristically a thief, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. And as a Christian, as a new man, you're going you're to take off all those old clothes and you're going to be characterized with the new clothes of righteousness and you're going to see your thievery days and you're going to say, no, I want no part of that. In fact, I've been so transformed, I want to give. I want to give. I want to work hard. I don't want to take what is not my own, I want to give. I want to give to people. So much so, I want to work with my own hands to the point of exhaustion so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Number four and finally as we close, put off corrupt talk and put on edifying speech. Put off corrupt talk and put on edifying speech speech. Notice what he says. Put off. Put off corrupting talk. Corrupt talk is sapros. Very, very graphic word for Paul to use there. Sapros. S-A-P-R-O-S which refers to something that is rotten or putrid. That's what, that's what the old life and the old talk is. You know, you're in the locker room with the guys. Right? You're just talking with the ladies and you're giggling about this or that and it's actually corrupt talk. It's something that's rotten and putrid. That's the way you used to live. By the way, that word sapros used quite literally referred to things like this. Rotted wood, diseased lungs, rancid fish, withered flowers, and rotten fruit. You remember in Matthew chapter 7 when it talked about the bad trees that give off the bad fruit, that's the word, sapros. Bad fruit. 
rotten fruit. That's what false teachers purvey in their teaching. And in Matthew 13:48, it talks about bad fish that need to be thrown away. Rotten, rancid. And he says, you better put that off. You better put that off. No rotten, corrupting, filthy talk in the body of Christ. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Well, what should you put on? How about good words of grace that build up? Good words of grace. Good, agathos, as opposed to sapros. Instead of corrupting talk, good words, healthy words, words that build up, oikodome, words that edify. You don't want to tear down, you want to build up. He's been talking about edifying. Look at what he said in verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. And he says, when each part is working properly, including your speech, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then he says finally here in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were redeemed. You were redeemed out of that corrupt life. That's what you were delivered from. And the Holy Spirit, He redeemed you. He sealed you in that redemption. And when you go back to some of those corrupt statements that used to characterize you, and when you let that slip... Uh, when you have the, the heart maybe of anger towards someone and you talk corruptingly about them and you even in a sense inadvertently don't realize what you're doing and you are tearing them down instead of building them up or maybe sometimes you know exactly what you're doing because they hurt you. And because they've hurt you, you want to hurt them right back. Instead of giving good to their evil, you want to give evil right back to their evil. Yeah, because people do sin against you. And they do say evil things about you at times. But instead of responding with evil for evil, you respond with evil by doing good. You want to build up. You want to edify. And you by all means don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Isaiah 63 is probably where Paul may have taken this very idea. You can look at it on your own. Isaiah 63. Look at the parallels between Isaiah 63 and this grieving of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, do you see verses 31 and following? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put off from you along with all malice, kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, being imitators of God, chapter 5, verse 1, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave Himself up for us. We'll talk about that next time. This is, this is an opportunity for us, and I mean this, an opportunity for us to be so transformed in our thinking and our behavior that we become quite the draw for non-Christians. Quite the draw. Would to God that we would live in such a way in our community as to draw non-Christians to us and say, Look how they love each other. Look how they seek to build one another up. Look how they want to speak truth and not falsehood. 
Look at what they do when they are angry at the right things and not sinfully angry at the wrong things. And look what they do. They meet each other's needs, not by stealing from them, but by meeting those needs by working hard. These are great practical truths. And may God give us these virtues and put away from us all these vices. Let's pray together. Father, what practicality we have here. Thank you so much for giving us these truths and for challenging us to make these truths a part of our everyday living. We're the new man. We ought to have the the new attitudes and the new behaviors. And may we do so. Just like this song says, let the fragrance of our prayers arise. Lead us on the road of sacrifice that in unity the face of Christ will be clear for all the world to see. May it be so for the glory and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.